Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello, and welcome to From Queer to Eternity, a podcast exploring what it means to us to be queer. My name's Scott Hancock, and every episode I'll be chatting to a different guest from the LGBTQ plus community, talking about their lives, experiences, and what queerness means to them, and hopefully discovering just how much we all have in common. Due to the nature of these conversations, certain themes, phrases, or experiences discussed may be upsetting for some of our listeners, but generally we're here to celebrate queerness in all its forms, and have a good time sharing our stories. This episode, I'll be chatting with... Jamie Windows. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. More than welcome. Pleasure to speak with you again. You know, <laughs> it, it feels like a lifetime ago we were sort of working together on the audiobook version of your first book, In Their Shoes, for Audible. Do you know what I find interesting about that? Because I've always wondered about this, about audio people. No offense. Mm. Is, <laughs> are you... Because <laughs> I'm like, I forget that you're obviously listening along. Mm. And I sometimes just presume that, especially like if I'm filming something or people of like the tech people, I'm like, are they listening or are they just doing their job and like listening along? But interesting to, I presume here that you, you took it in a bit. Well, I'd read it before as well, but... Uh... Uh, I mean, yeah, no, the psychology of it, I think, is quite interesting. And I think the one way that, you know, I like to think that I am no, in no way an expert. Mm. And I think that's what I really wanted to get across with the book, is that one massive way that you can learn from other people is through stories. There is obviously a massive argument and case for learning through theory, like queer theory. That's an, obviously a brilliant way to learn history, learn the psychology, learn the sociology of that. But... In my experience, I was like, I'm just going to share a story because I personally connect with stories. So it's almost like you can, it's like a buffet, like you can take what you like, believe yeah. what you like. Um, as long as something resonates, I'm happy with that. <laughs> I remember at the time there were some things you'd, you'd been quite happy to commit to paper, but actually when you heard yourself reading them aloud, they affected you either because you went, <laughs> this is more outrageous than I expected it to be. Or, you know, there are things that are difficult to talk about. Yeah, and I, I think the um, <laughs> I've, not, I've I've recorded snippets of um, audiobooks before, but I've I've never done a full one like that that was quite um, honest. And I think that yeah, there was a part of it that I was like, God, I'm, you know, vocalizing what you've said is is quite different uh, to just writing it. And I was also still in a stage where the book wasn't out. I'd forgotten mm. that people were actually going to read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know. Hearing, you know, hearing your feedback and hearing people's feedback was the first time. That was like one of the first times that I'd heard feedback on it. So, yeah, there were moments I remember in in the recording sessions where I would, I was like, God, have I actually said that? Or talking about like sex life or relationships that I was like, oh, this is really embarrassing. But um, I mean, it's, it's resonated with people. I think mm. I can, when people read it physically, I can almost escape the embarrassment because I'm not there reading it to them. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it. It's written in a way that feels quite intimate. It's like sitting on the sofa having a chat, which I think immediately engages 
with the reader or listener. And that's why it was such a lovely project. Obviously, when we recorded it, it hadn't been released at that point. I think you only just had a proof copy. But since Mm. then, how has the reaction been? And also, you know, you're one of our younger contributors to this podcast. What was your reaction when you're suddenly asked to write a book about your life, really? Yeah, I think when I, I was asked when I was 21, and I kind of laughed in his face because I, I was like well the book initially was born as um so just to give context I was kind of approached to cross collaborate with Jessica Kingsley Publishers to create some form of non-binary guide and I kind of went into that first meeting being like I don't I don't have the ability at, at a at this age and b with with my standing in the community as a fairly privileged person I'm not going to sit here and tell people how to be non-binary. I think the language I thought was really important about how I discussed non-binary life. I was like, I need it to be very ironically fluid and quite like interpretable, Mm. if that's a word. And so, yeah, because I'm I'm basically 12 years old. So I was like, I don't (laughs) know what I'm going to say. But I knew I had a lot to say. I think that was just kind of imposter syndrome and fear and you know I've only ever written short form before so I was like how am I going to push my life into this book but the reaction as you mentioned has been really lovely it's been really nourishing to see such a breadth and depth of a reaction so Mm. I've had like really lovely comments from people my age or people who are at a similar position in their lives as non-binary people but I've also had you know, intergenerational messages from people who are a lot older who are non-binary or people who are parents of non-binary children just kind of thanking me, which I find a bit bizarre, but I appreciate where they're coming from, I guess. Because I don't think, not to like downplay the book, but I don't think it's like groundbreakingly incredible, but I just think for people that may have not even experienced this life before or heard these stories, I can appreciate how they can take something from that and be like okay wow I can I can learn from this well I think that's it it's remarkably accessible you know as a gay man reading it there were lots of things that struck a chord with me even though you know on paper it's a different experience (laughs) sort of going back to that there's there's a question I've been asking all my sort of interviewees which is what does the word queer mean to you juicy juicy question (laughs) I think so it's really interesting. I was actually just before this, I was on Instagram and I was watching a video and Instagram had asterisked, if that's the word, out the word queer from their captions. And I was like, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh. Because for me, like, and I can understand that. And I think, you know, again, if we think about like intergenerational effects of language, queer has often a connotation of weird. Like my, mm. my grandparents would use it to just like describe things that are odd. And I never really understood what it meant until, I guess, when I was 18 and I moved to London, I realised that there was this word, queer, that wasn't necessarily bad and was being kind of reinterpreted for a, for the community. It, was, it, it kind of had its connotations stripped away. Hmm. And I think what's important is that the power behind that, the power behind people taking the connotations of a word that were once bad and now making them good were done by the people that were affected by that word. Yes. So I think for me, queer is liberation, but it's also just like familiarity. It's just like cosy. I don't really see it as um, 
anything kind of bizarre or abstract. I, I just feel it's a very comfortable word for me. Like it just kind of is quite ambiguous and it rubs some people up the wrong way, which yeah. I actually quite enjoy because it's quite vague. Like if you have no idea what it means, like if I went to like a blokey bloke and was like, I'm queer, he'd be like, what? what? He'd still want like a definition. And I mm. kind of quite like that I, the uh, irony behind that where it's like, well, it's mine to define, uh, not yours, Steve. and you talk about moving to london there before that just to give people an idea of of sort of your background where did you grow up what sort of uh family environment did you have so i grew up in dorset dorchester to be precise the county town of dorset very meek very mild um has like a peacocks and a new look (laughs) that's about it not Um, peacocks anymore so sad no r.o.p um and i think yeah, I mean, my family, my family setup was quite, tra- well, I hate the word traditional, but like, I'm and dad still together. I mm. was one of, I'm really bad. And I think I spoke about this when we recorded. I'm really bad at understanding the family dynamics in terms of like the family tree. I still can't really work out what, what I am, but my, my, both my parents had children from previous relationships. So I have two stepbrothers, no, two half brothers and two half-sisters. So I am te- I like to think of myself as a technical-only child. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I lived, I lived kind of with them. I, it, was, it was nice. You know, we lived in a little council house. It was mm. cosy. We just kind of... I just got on with it, really, at home. There was no real drama at home. It's kind of school. The small-town mindset that I realised just wasn't for me. I never had, like, masses of prejudice, mm. fortunately, in my... Uh, house and in terms of school you know there have been huge advances in in recent decades compared to when i was at school in terms of lgbt awareness what's the sort of educational background on those issues for you like because i imagine it would probably focus more on sexuality than gender yeah massively not not to presume your age um <laughs> but well let's just say the gay code did did section 28 impact you in any way uh, yeah i grew up under section 28 yeah yeah <laughs> um only funny. just only just let's no, make that clear but yeah i was gonna say i, do, I wouldn't want to yeah no i think for me it was still interesting because what when, when was i okay so let's say i was like 10 11 that was like 10 years 10 11 years ago so 2010 and you'd think at that time there would be kind of progressive education. And there obviously was a lot more than, say, in the Section 28 days or the early 2000s. Like, but gay relationships were spoken about, but in no way were they given the same level of detail. And I don't just mean, like, the ins and outs, but I mean, like, in terms of keeping safe, sexual health, AIDS, HIV. Like, mm. none of that was spoken about in the same way that we would have, like, a whole week's worth of lessons on how to not get pregnant. Which is, you know, fine, but it, there needs to be balance. And there was no discussion. Like you say, there was no discussion on gender identity. There was no discussion on the intricacies of queerness. Like, it was just very much like, you're either straight or you're gay. That's it's still quite it. a binary um, definition of sexuality, even, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I remember we have one we have one day where we had speakers come in and talk to us about... There were two gay men, and they came to talk to us about HIV mm. and AIDS. Which I thought, you know... The fact that I can still remember it now is obviously quite telling, but I think that was the only real specific thing that was maybe quite LGBT-focused that I remember. The rest was kind of like, find it out yourself, really. And that is quite a, a sort of negative um, 
presentation of the gay experience. Because mm. <laughs> obviously HIV and AIDS affects everyone. But we'll save that part of the syllabus just for uh, when we need to tackle gay sexuality. Yeah, no, definitely. I haven't. I didn't really think of that. Yeah, the fact that the only mention of queerness was "don't get AIDS" <laughs> in 2010. Like, obviously, it's still important, but it's like, how outdated is this? Syllabus? Yes. And when did you first sort of realise that you didn't fit into the sort of cishet bracket? You know, I do. I have quite like a a cliche kind of queer small town existence where I was like always into like I used to go to dance lessons I used to be in like the choir I used to try and like you know just have like lots of female friends and, mm. I, and that was fine for me and and I you know there was a lot of bullying that came with that but I never at that point in time I didn't feel like I had um, any real quandaries with my gender identity until there was a moment when I left so my sixth form college and my school were at the same place. Mm. So like as soon as I left um, school, I was coming back to the same place. But the one difference was that I was allowed to wear, wear my own clothes. And I found it really interesting that for, what, 15, 16 years of my life, I'd only ever been able to wear my own clothes on the weekends. And I was like, God, this is so much opportunity now to just like really think about what I want to wear. And that, probably around 16, 17, was the first time that I was like, oh, I have such a like leaning towards fashion in a way that is quite new to me. You know, I, I've always, I'd always thought and watched like, I think in the book I talk about the TV, <laughs> the TV Choice Awards, and how I'd always be jealous that the cast of EastEnders could wear ball gowns. And I'd be like, why can't I wear a ball gown? Hmm. Or just like, you know, the stereotypes of like traditional men getting ready for events is that they get ready in 10 minutes and they throw on the same thing. And I was always be like, no, oh, that's boring. Why, why do I have to do that? <laughs> and I think that was when I started questioning things. But it wasn't really until I left Dor- Dorset and went to London that I found the language to address who I was. Did you sort of feel you had to define as, as gay? Because at that point, that would have been the closest label for your experience yeah I think in those first in when I was between like 15 to 18 and I didn't know anything else other than kind of a cis way of life Hmm. I would just identify as gay and almost use that as a a shorthand I imagine for people to people could latch onto that more easily than yeah like because it was like people had a a stereotypical view of what gay or gayness looks like Hmm. um and I was kind of fulfilling that role for them Although at the time I didn't know that there was more to be... Well, I had an inkling that there was more to be discovered, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't feel uncomfortable with with identifying as gay at that time because it's at least I wasn't identifying as straight. You know, I didn't didn't really have the luxury of coming out during school because I was kind of dragged out, as it were. Like people... People would presume that I was gay and I never really got got a moment to sit down with myself and be like, okay, yeah, you're gay. That's, this is cool. I was kind of told I was gay for so long that I, not that I adopted it from being told it, but I was just never given the autonomy to come out on my own terms. I'm, I'm interested. We, we sort of skirt around the issue of, of mental health at school. How did you feel this experience sort of affected you in that sense? You know, having to discover your identity with people actively telling you what they think you are and not necessarily having the resources to discover yourself in the way you needed to. Yeah, I don't think I fully realised until 
um, actually quite recently when I've been, been looking back about how damaging that was. Mm. Um, you know, there were mental health provisions at school, but in, in no way like there are now, and even now they're not very appropriate for the LGBTQ plus community. We, you know, we always have to end up either going to a, going privately or going to a very specific therapist or advisor. And I think the main impact to my mental health at that young age was the reaction to me. Mm. So like during school, I had moments where, like one that I can remember is I was, when I kind of realised that I was gay and I kind of had a crush on the first first guy that I ever fancied. And I don't know why, but I just presumed that everyone around me didn't know still that I was gay, even though they were telling it to me because I'd never said it. I was like, I'm just going to presume that no one knows. And I used to write about this guy in my diary that I'd have with me at school. And one day they, uh, him and his friends like saw me writing and took it and just like ran around the school, like showing it to everyone. And I think that was the first time that I realized the mental health impact of Mm. my identity, because I was like, oh, other people have a real problem with this. Like I'd never, that's probably, yeah, the first time that I've been like, oh, this is actually something that I can be targeted for and can cause me harm and can impact my my mental health, my life, my brain, as it were. You talk about growing up in, in quite a small community in that sense. Do you remember the first time you met another queer person that you actively sort of identified with and sort of recognised yourself in? Um, I think it's... I'm going to show my age here, but the first... <laughs> <laughs> it's really obnoxious, but, like, the first... I remember the first time that I didn't meet them, but I saw, I found people online and social media mm. was through YouTube. And I would kind of just engage with like, just like 17, 18, I was getting into makeup. And I was like, oh, there's like a whole group of people. They're all in the States. But I was like, there's a whole group of people here that are like me, that kind of are just floating around in this middle ground mm. and being outrageous and being fun. And I really enjoyed that. There was a couple, there were a couple of out people at my school, but no, none that I really identified with. Did they have the same sort of experience you did in terms of people targeting them? In a way, yeah. There was some, some people, yeah, some people did. But then they, I think what they did is they almost saw what was happening to me and realised, okay, we need to do the opposite. Like, Jamie is the full person. We are going right. to... Um, so they would either, like, completely deny it or they would... They would use their, they, they would kind of embrace that they were gay and almost be quite, not aggressive, but like their personalities, well, actually no, they were quite aggressive. Their personalities were quite like mean girl or like mean boy. You know what I mean? Like they would become quite bitchy and it would just be known as quite like a personality trait. So almost just like a defense mechanism mm. because they knew what would happen if they lowered their guard and were just like, yeah, I'm gay. So yeah, God, I've never thought that. I was, <laughs> I was the blueprint. For how not <laughs> and not to be gay in school <laughs> before I got to sixth form college mm. I was very shy like my reports would always be like Jamie's great but they need to speak up more so I, I would just not speak so I think that combined with the fact that I was clearly a massive gay was you know basically just painted a target on my back I was easy pickings all the other out gay people were either very popular very confident or uh in inverted commas, like straight acting. Moving on from school, though, hopefully to more positive times. <laughs> um, you then went to university and and got a first in fashion management mm-hmm. marketing. Thank you. 
How was that experience? Did you suddenly find yourself surrounded by more like-minded people? I mean, you say you already had an interest in clothes and fashion anyway, so presumably you felt a lot more comfortable. Yeah, there was definitely an, an element of like, I had got to a point where with fashion, where I was really exploring it a lot more and moving to London and having the autonomy to just do whatever I wanted, push my fashion into a, a mm. realm that was more expressive. And I was really exploring it at this stage, which meant that although the reaction to me at university was, wasn't as bad as it was at school, there was still a kind of, an, it was almost flipped, like there was an element of voyeurism to it. So it was like people weren't necessarily looking at me to be mean, but they were kind of fawning over me because I was different, which I found, you know, not as equally as bad, but still kind of like, go away, I'm not like your weird pet. <laughs> How does that apply to modelling as well? When I first started out in the industry, I were, it was as a result of me doing a lot of kind of written work and activist-focused work hmm. that um, I would then get tapped into to model because of what I say which is actually quite limiting in a way because then you are only used when what you're saying is seemed relevant Mm. so yeah there's definitely voyeurism in fashion and modeling because it's like people just want to when the time is right people just want to kind of gawk over you and be like wow that person's cool and then as soon as the moment's done they're back onto their like classic fashion scheduling (laughs) it's a fickle industry very fickle I hate it (laughs) Did you find uh, many struggles in the industry because you didn't necessarily conform to the binary stereotype? Yeah, I think that was one of the main reasons why I didn't go into traditional full-time employment post-graduation because I I was really, I was worried about, you know, where, where could I work that I'd fit in and feel comfortable? Like, where would I be able to work that I wouldn't feel outcast? Because I did an internship in my second year. Um, as part of the course and it was fine but there was still that, that element of voyeurism and kind of confusion when I would walk into the office um, I interned in fashion PR um, was still there and I was like this is really uncomfortable and straight after that internship I went to Stonewall and interned there over the summer and I was like right it's either work for yourself or work at Stonewall there's no in between because um, it's like <laughs> I'd never... night and day completely yeah different. You know, 100%. And I was like, well, I don't, you know, yeah, basically, yeah, there was a massive fear of like, is is this going to hinder me in this industry or is this going to make me in this industry? And I think, uh, I mean, both are true in a way. Mm. I'm curious as well. I mean, we we spoke a bit at school of how you, you didn't really have the opportunity to come out as gay because people made that assumption for you. But in terms of coming out as non-binary, how did that come about? And... You know, I th- I think there's still a lack of understanding as to what non-binary means. So, just for to be clear for people, how do you define the sort of non-binary existence? Yeah, another great, great question. I think it's a, I guess in in layman's terms, like this is kind of if you were to look it up in the dictionary, like it's an identity that is neither male nor female that kind of isn't. You know, you don't subscribe to the gender binary and it is underneath what is called like the trans umbrella so you can identify as non-binary and trans you can identify yourself as trans if you're non-binary because it falls under the category if you were thinking of it very logistically as transgender for me it's you know there's there's no what you know not to use the line of the book but there is no one way to be non-binary and I think 
for me, it's interesting because I don't think about it a lot. Mm. Like, I think a, people, a lot of people presume that if you're non-binary, you're constantly thinking about your gender identity. But the only, and the only times that we have to think about it is when the world either doesn't appreciate it or accept it or puts barriers up so that we can't live. Like if, I think that's what people don't understand, is if the world was more accessible, we wouldn't have to shout about all the shit all the time. <laughs> I'm Tilly Steele. And I'm Helen Monk. And this is Bitchin'. I'm dyslexic. Yeah, why do you read the Wikipedia page? <laughs> it's good to practice. Yeah. A podcast where every week we talk about a different person. So how old was he when he first popped on the scene? That's a great If question. you say he was my age, I'm gonna <laughs> fucking die. And we veer wildly off track. Pop that Prosec. <laughs> Available on all your podcast apps. That's not my... Can you not say er in the advert? (laughs) Available on all your podcast platforms. Just search Bitchin or Great Big Owl. We'll see you there. That was all right. (laughs) Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I did something, um, I filmed something before Christmas for um, Channel 4 where I sat down with, I sat down with this like cis, straight, blokey bloke and we basically had to discuss our lives and our gender identities and how we can learn from each other. Mm. And I think that's what I liked about doing the book and what I liked about doing this chat with him was I wasn't sat there to try and convert him in any way, but there is merit in people of all genders understanding just the simple fact that we live in a gender binary and that you don't have to subscribe to it, but you can still be cisgendered. You know, it benefits everyone to have these strict rules on gender expression and identity relaxed because you know men can wear what they want women can wear what they want they can say and do what they want if these rules are relaxed so yeah obviously being non-binary benefits trans and non-binary people first but it also has ramifications for people of all genders because they can just breathe a bit more you know relax do you find having been son male at birth it's harder for you to express yourself in the same way I think, you know, what's interesting is if, if I look at the fashion industry, 
Mm. Um, when I started university, we had to do a project on trends and what trends we thought were in, as it were. And the majority of people at that time were talking about gender fluidity. And I remember thinking, like, looking in the fashion industry and looking at, like, high street and high fashion and being like, okay, what is their interpretation of gender fluidity? And a lot of the time, well, 99% of the time, it was either casual wear, like tracksuits that were maybe pink that both men and women could wear, or it was, like, women in suits. And there seemed to be a complete block at this idea that men could present in in a feminine way. Like, I was Mm. like, why could you not you know, have a dress here and put both of your models in it. Because I think w- what comes with being assigned male at birth and also often in public read as male yeah, is that if I'm presenting myself in a feminine way, it can go either two ways. People can either be horrified or people can either appreciate that in, especially in Britain, like the culture of effeminate gay men is quite common. Like I think of like David Bowie, Julian Clary, like that's I think that's why I have such an audience of like on Instagram of like forty year old women. Is because they don't necessarily understand my gender identity, but they can relate to what they're seeing because they're like, Oh, I loved David Bowie when I was younger. So like it's a real divide. Like some people love it mm. and but don't care for what it actually means and some people will just downright hate it. I, it just baffles me why you know, it's so ingrained, isn't it? Why we can't just have fashion that represents people, everyone it's just a bit boring as well isn't it do you think it's just a fear of not understanding yeah i think there isn't you know there's an argument and a lot of um i've had a lot of non-binary people say this about how people's ignorance towards this issue and people's specifically like people's hatred towards this issue is because they themselves fear what this potential could lead to in them If they were able to have the confidence or the ability to do what they wanted, it would scare them. So if they see someone, you know, they might really want to do this, but they're scared. And that's, I think that kind of turns the hate into slight compassion because I'm like, so don't presume that all white man fans that shout at me want to start wearing dresses. But it's like they themselves in some way or another are trapped by the confines of masculinity and they see someone clearly not caring about Mm. the confines of traditional gender expression and i think you know yeah there is a there's a part of jealousy in that moving on to something else you would have tackled around this time i'd like you to talk a little bit about fruitcake magazine you you founded yeah and you know what fruitcake i did i was speaking about this the other day i i don't really um so a friend asked me actually yesterday she was like are you gonna do it again and i was like do you know what no Because it's like, it had its moment in time. But for context, yeah, so it's a LGBTQ plus focused magazine that I started in my final year of university. Um, So I was asked to create any form of business that I wanted as part of my degree. And I just finished interning at Stonewall. And we were in a point in the media with trans, specifically with trans people, where the representation, the discussion was, was, you know, horrific. So I was like, let's try and do something positive. So I started, I, I made the business plan and I made the first issue of Fruitcake in my final year of the degree. And it was just a place for, for like LGBTQ plus people to showcase their, their work and their their like skill. I think that was what I saw was missing from the industry. It was There's a lot of 
people talking about their experiences and talking about their trauma or talking about things that have happened to them, but rarely do they actually just get a moment to do what they love and have it showcased. And, you know, it was it was well-received. We won awards at Graduate Fashion Week. It continued on for another two, three issues. And then, you know, it was just me doing it, and it was a real love. But it got me into the media industry. I loved doing it, and I think there's no shame or drama in acknowledging that some things are just right at that moment in time. And then, you know, it doesn't mean it's being put down forever. It just means right now I am... Your focus is on other projects. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit busy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then I think the following year, you sort of made headlines campaigning for non-binary citizens to be recognised on British passports. Did you always intend to sort of become an activist in the way you, you sort of have ended up becoming? No, 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 no. With the, um, <laughs> it's classic, with the passport campaign, um, just following on from that story about fruitcake, I'm just mm. gonna, like to acknowledge that not all of my life decisions have been regrets, but... Um, <laughs> I I started that in a place of anger. I think that's fine. You know, a lot of a lot of changes comes from being angry. That frustration, I suppose. Of yeah, I basically had. I, I was basically like asked. My parents were like, "Oh, your passport's out of date," and I was like, "Okay, cool, love it." And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Let's go get a new photo." And then I really, I looked into it. And I was like, "Oh, I can't actually get one. A passport, not a photo." And I was like, "Oh, okay. What do I do now then?" And so I started the petition, and I'll be honest, quite ignorantly, I think, quite naively, mm. from a point of like personal frustration. And I think, you know, that's fine for some people, but what I've realised over the years, and especially over the past year, and just really listening to like grassroots organisers, is that although that campaign and petition might have helped some people, it's not actually having legal recognition isn't helpful for all people. Mm. Um, for example, for people who are asylum seekers, if they are outed or have to kind of disclose their gender identity or or even, you know, we've got examples of asylum seekers expressing their sexuality, that they are asked to prove that in quite demeaning ways to gain yes. asylum or they're asked to, they're disbelieved. You know, there's no right, there's no way to win in that sense. So I think, although for some, the privileged view, it may have made their lives easier. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is going to be social acceptance via legislation. Um, you know, look at gay marriage mm. or same-sex marriage. There is, despite the introduction of that in this country, hate crimes are still rising. So it doesn't mean that social inclusion is going to magically happen. Um, if anything, with trans with trans progression in this country, it almost is a step back because people think we're encroaching. So yeah, I, I I put that campaign down to just like learning. You know, I, I just started something. I learned that it's not necessarily the right thing for all people. And I stepped back and I feel very comfortable with that and very happy with, with that decision because I'm not an activist. Um, I'm not, I'm just someone who shares their life. Um, and as a, as a funny face, do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I'm just, I'm just someone that has fallen into this industry that is then suddenly labeled as an activist just because I say what I'm thinking. But you're very much in the public eye. Wow. Well, more so than, than most. I suppose you have a voice where many people 
may not. <laughs> no, yeah. How, how have you found that experience? You know, the responsibility of that, and also, I suppose it, it gets you more public attention. Has that had positives, negatives? Yeah, no, I think it's it's a difficult one because, like you say, there is a moment where, for example, if like on the news something comes up about being non-binary, like I'll be asked to comment, or mm. you know, I have worked in the media for nearly three years now, so I have. You know, good relationships with places. I have good relationships with um, editors, and you know, I've started a new role last year with Gay Times as contributing editor. So, like, I yeah, I've definitely got positions of of privilege and power within the the media industry at the moment. But I think what what I like to do with that is to almost make it make it so that I don't have to talk about being non-binary in these spaces. I think there's a presumption that I have to. Because my profile and my image, I guess, rose as a result of the passport campaign and me being very vocal about trans and non-binary issues, which I don't regret in any way. But, you know, it, it can be limiting because what then happens is when suddenly, and I notice this whenever I used to pitch to like magazines or editors, hmm. piece like written pieces or projects that are not. LGBT focused or are not non-binary focused, they'd be like, mm, "No, we don't think you're the right person for this." So, and it's so it, it does make it did make things quite limiting because I was only ever seen as someone that could talk about trans issues rather than just like what I want to talk about. So, ironically, being you know wonderfully fluid in your life sort of limited what people felt you were able to contribute. Yeah, definitely, and that's like, come on, look at what I wear. I obviously, have an interest in fashion, like. <laughs> I mean, like yeah, that's what that's what I've realised in the past year or so is that, especially over the over lockdown, is I was like, what do I actually want to do? What do I enjoy doing? Mm. Let's do that. Let's stop doing the things that cause us stress or cause us panic. Like because, like you say, if, if as someone who has a has a profile in the trans community, being asked to speak publicly often to a lot of criticism is a lot of pressure, and I don't feel the need to put myself under that pressure anymore because I'm not the best person to talk about it all the time and Mm. I used to feel a lot of pressure to be like you need to talk about this and I'm like well actually it's a better thing to say a I don't want to and b it's because I don't necessarily have the mental capacity or if I'm honest the education or this is it there's no single experience for sort of any queer person so I guess the more voices we're able to include in the conversation the richer that conversation becomes yeah massively that's what fruitcake was all about it's just like showing people from you know different communities black and brown queer people trans people like disabled trans folks like that our community is not just made up of the ones that look interesting and are white and skinny Mm. that that are given these opportunities and i think that also played a massive part in my decision to to turn down this work is I am privileged in this industry and I can't just continue to take up space whilst also saying we need to celebrate the intersectionality of our community. It doesn't, it, you know, it's, I, I'm doing a disservice to the community and myself by saying things like that and then being like, no, I'm just going to continue doing this job. <laughs> Talking about the community, you used the word encroach earlier. As if you don't feel there's, uh, forgive me if I'm putting words into your mouth, but it almost gave the sense that you may not feel there's complete inclusivity. Um, obviously, with big LGBTQ plus events like Pride and everything, 
do you feel you're represented or does it tend to be focused more on sex as opposed to gender? Um, yeah, I think in, in, encroaching kind of in that context, I was thinking of it as like how for, for I'm going to really butcher a quote here, but there's something <laughs> about like the privileged in the in community, not mm. just the queer community, but in wider society feel like their rights are being compromised when the oppressed are given rights. Yes. And I think that's what I... I don't actually think it isn't encroaching. I think it's just perceived as that because trans people are, you know, in some situations being given rights or accessibility and people are threatened by that because of misinformation in the media. But in Pride, for example, I don't... There is there is representation of trans people, but by no means enough. And I think specifically with, like, Pride in London, hmm. there is there's an argument that a lot of it is is not as inclusive or diverse as it should be. You know, research came out last week that said that there is still no understanding as to why the police, for example, have unconscious bias towards black and brown people. Yet Pride in London still demand that police are the security, the Met Police are the security at Pride in London. And things like that prevent inclusivity at Pride because a whole swathe of black and brown queer people are going to feel unsafe. Hmm. And I think there are definitely problems within mass corporations and mass Pride events specifically that mean that they are not inclusive because there is not safety for all. Safety is important if you need if you want to make an inclusive event or mm. inclusive group, which is sad. That's why so many offshoots happen. You know, like Black Pride, um, Trans Pride in London that started two years ago. Like that's why the smaller ones get it better because it's run by and for the communities that need it. In terms of the community and dating, I suppose, are there any unique issues to dating as a trans non binary person? Yeah, I mean, there's. I've never, I've never had the accessibility to dating that a lot of people have. You know, I find it really interesting that people. This has never been my experience, but I find it really interesting that people can choose to date. <laughs> you know, and people are like, oh, "I'm going to get back into dating." I'm like, "What? What do you mean? Like, how?" Because I've never had the. I've never felt like I have a choice as to whether or not I can date mm. because I don't have. Um, I, because basically, people will either completely disregard you. Or they will just fetishize you for sex. So it's like there's no real romance. I've never encountered. Well, there's one instance in the book that I'll let you discover, but but I've never really encountered like a continual easy breezy like dating relationship. But I, you know, obviously it's something that I think about. But I don't. It might sound sad, but I don't know what I'm missing if I've not had it. Yeah. And I think it's better to wait and to feel comfortable in myself before I start to, trying to date or even think about it. Because it's just not on my radar because it's not something I do, hmm. which is, I guess is a bit sad. But um, I was single from most of my 20s. Didn't bother me. Well, there we go. There, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm still 12 years old. I can't be having a boyfriend all the time. I think that's it. There's probably a lot of pressure on on people in the community you know particularly with queer people who have made a decision to come out to almost justify that decision and therefore maybe feel more compelled than straight people to find a partner yeah no i don't mean yeah because it's like 
if you have the strength to come out, you almost it's almost like, okay, prove it, where's your boyfriend? Or, or yeah, why did I put myself through that if I can't you know, enjoy that experience, I suppose? Yeah. I mean, it's fine. I mean, you know. But I think there's a lot to be said for in taking that time for yourself to discover yourself as much as other people. Yeah, and I think what's, what I find interesting about dating is that I, although I have, um, I will have specific differences in my experience because I'm trans, there are also a lot of commonalities that we will all have around dating. Mm. You know, much like I write about in the book about fashion, family, you know, we all have common experiences that mean we can relate to one another no matter how or what we identify as. Obviously, you're a role model to lots of people. I'm curious, are there any other people who've helped support you on your journey or look up to who you'd recommend people seek out if they're wanting more information or a different take? They're definitely, yeah. They're de- or when I moved to London and when I first started getting into the, the queer scene, you know, people like Travis Alabanza and people, especially kind of the grassroots organisers, so people that created UK Trans Pride, like Lucia Blake, and people that just really encapsulated what I saw as brilliance and transness and, and power, essentially. Mm. Whether or not it was one-on-one or whether or not it was just kind of me from afar being like, I really appreciate your journey, your experience, your your strength. I'd say now, now I've, I've actually found a lot of love in people that I never would have, not necessarily personally, but I mean just like groups of people that I would never have thought that I would connect with, like... I've got an amazing friend called Henry James Garrett, who's an illustrator and author. Mm. Um, and he wrote a book called This Book Will Make You Kinder. And he's just like an amazing friend and ally that has actually shown me that I need to, this is my my experience, but I need to be a bit less horrible to men, to straight cis men sometimes. Mm. <laughs> Because, you know, that's what he is and he's absolutely wonderful and is like probably one of the best allies that I have in my life and is a real friend. And I think it's difficult when all you've experienced is disappointment or hurt from people. So I understand it's, it's easier said than done to just give people a chance. But yeah. And, and looking back at your experience, how long do you think it has taken you to be comfortable with your identity or is it still very much a sort of day-to-day work in progress and you keep discovering new aspects i think the thing is i am very comfortable with it Mm. i always have been since i kind of first explored it through fashion at 16 17 but and i think that's the misconception with not necessarily a misconception but a presumption that all trans people struggle Mm. with it and you know some people do and that's that's absolutely valid and they're experienced and they need support as well as as much as everyone else does but I think there's um the the media discussion around transness paints all of these uh discoveries or thoughts around transness as something that is scary or difficult to manage but I think the joy that I found in being able to change how I look change how I think interact with new people question pronouns you know all of these things I actually find really comfortable because it's it's me getting to know me a bit more every day um rather than me being like oh fuck what do I (laughs) who am I now god obviously there's a bit of like oh sometimes a bit scary but I yeah it doesn't phase me as much as it used to I love how we managed to get right to the end before you slipped in the word fuck (laughs) I didn't know if I was allowed so I thought I'd just throw it why not (laughs) Jamie, thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been an absolute hoot. You're a gem.
Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks so much to Jamie for taking the time out of their schedule to join us today. As we mentioned at the start of our conversation, Jamie's book, In Their Shoes, Navigating Non-Binary Life, is available now in all good bookshops, and an audiobook version is also available via Audible. Don't forget as well, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at queer to eternity And until next time, thank you again for listening. I'm Tom, and I make a podcast where I log in to celebrities' Amazon accounts. It's called... What a brilliant idea for a pod. There's no original pods out there anymore, but this genuinely is. Oh, thanks, Ben Bailey-Smith. Anyway, it's called... This is good, isn't it? It's clever, this podcast. You should do more. Thanks, Kerry Godleyman. It's called... This is such a great idea, by the way. What great podcast. Shappi Corsander, you're too kind. The podcast is but called... it's biographical. You can get all sorts of information out of people. This is a very good idea. Thank you, Nick Helm. It's called My Mate Bought a Toaster. I'm going to listen to this podcast. Thanks, Alex Horn. Can you tell your friends? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.